So uh, yeah, go ahead. Let me know what your what your questions are. Yeah, so um, sort of the CEO of Stone Aerospace. Um, what, what kind of, of company is it in terms of, of size? How many people do work under your, your command? Yeah, we've got uh, roughly 20 full-timers here at the Austin lab and 35 uh, people who are what you might call uh, remote uh, workers. So we've been doing remote work for 20 years ever since I established the lab down here. It was easier to have experts who didn't want to move, you know, their job uh, at the time. And so they, uh, you know, they do their work wherever they want. And uh, when, uh, when it's time to do something like system integration or a hardware, uh, you know, in the loop check, uh, they'll fly down here, they'll spend uh, a week or two uh, at the lab, get their data and then, and then go home. So, you know, all, all over, we're roughly 45 people right now. Okay. And, and what, what sort of, um annual budget do you operate on that well oh it, it it varies it's between five and ten million a year is what we're pulling in all right so that's from nesec contracts and oh no we we do we do all kinds of things okay. uh, right now we're uh, commercializing uh our sunfish vehicle okay. uh, we spun off a new company called sunfish inc mm -hmm. uh, and so that is uh now seeing um uh commercial inspection operations where mm -hmm. we send a team out uh, with vehicles uh, they'll go and they'll do uh, an underwater inspection of whatever you want, whether it's an aqueduct or a, a civil structure like a dam or a bridge, uh, something like that. Or if it's uh, offshore uh, power, whether it's uh, wind power or uh, oil and gas. And uh, we go, we take the vehicle out and uh, we'll build a 3D model, analyze for damage and give that kind of in information to the contractor. So that's a that's a direct commercial spinoff of all the 20 years worth of work that we did for NASA. All right. Yeah. So to get to uh, uh, the, the main topic here, uh, let's assume we have a lander on, on Europa and now we have to get under the ice. Uh, to do so, you need a mail probe, what you call a cryobot. Um, and, and you have described two different uh, approaches to building a cryobot, uh, a laser approach with the Archimedes uh, program and, and the closed loop uh, hot water approach with the Tor program. Could you briefly uh, describe what those uh, programs are? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, there's actually an intermediate version that you you missed there, which is a passive thermal probe, okay. and that was that was one of the original uh, designs that came out of the 1960s with Philbert up in Greenland. Um, and there were a lot of people who thought that that would never work. And one of the things that we've done here uh, in the last three years is built what currently is the only. Uh, outer planet simulator for uh, cryobot ice penetration. It's a meter diameter, two and a half meter tall slug of ice that's at 80 Kelvin and hard vacuum. And uh, the, you know, to, to cut to the, the chase, all three of those techniques will work. Um, what you find is that they sublimate the ice off uh, at the beginning. And as they get about two to three vehicle lengths uh, below the surface, the hole will freeze back up. The sublimated ice will freeze back into the hole, close the hole shut, and you'll get uh, vapor pressure, which will allow liquid water to form. So it works. I mean, there's no uh, magical showstopper. A lot of people used to tell us you could never pull this mission off um, mm. be because of that problem. They, it was called the starting problem, you know, mm. and there was some German data that suggested that the radiative heat loss would simply form mm. a crater and the uh, and the vehicle will just sit there, you know, never never going down. That's not the case. I can show you videos uh, from multiple tests that have that have gone on. Uh, but to go back to your question, 
So we've been playing this game for a long time and we've looked into a whole number of different technologies. The laser approach, there, there were actually two different versions. The, the original one was that we used uh, optical power to create heat. So we expanded a high power industrial laser into a, a beam dump, absorbed the heat, uh, ran that through a heat exchanger. And then we had a, a hot water jetting system that used that heat to melt the ice ahead of the vehicle. That was called Valkyrie. And uh, we actually uh, physically tested that out on the Matanuska Glacier, both in 2014 and 2015, and it works. Um, how high, you know, how high power can you go? Well, right now you can buy an industrial 200 kilowatt laser. Uh, we were using simply a, a small portable helicopter, portable five kilowatt unit, but it works. So it's just a matter of, you know, how much speed uh, do you want and, and how much power? Um, so the one thing to remember is that uh, when you're transferring optical power, you have to have a waveguide uh, to do that. So the, the vehicle deploys a fiber optic link. It's a special custom design. It's not a telecom fiber. Um, mm -hmm. It's designed for high power uh, transmission. And um, so we, we experimented in 2016 with the idea of using the optical power itself to see if we could melt ice and nobody and surprisingly nobody had actually ever done it um, so we built a focusing lens system at the front of the vehicle and the uh, the focal point was about 20 vehicle diameters uh, ahead of the nose of the cryobot and what we discovered uh, was that it was a hundred percent efficient uh, in transmitting the energy into the ice and we, uh, we set a, <laughs> if you're into these kind of uh, uh, niche uh, records, we set a cryobot speed record of 22.5 meters per hour. So that's um, the, the, the uh, laser saber. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so you know, it works. And uh, when I showed that to the uh, second Ocean Worlds uh, uh, workshop at Woods Hole back in 2016, uh, it, it really opened a lot of minds to thinking that that kind of mission was possible. But here's the uh, <clears throat> here's the limiting factor on that is that the optical waveguide uh, can only be so long. And once you get beyond a couple of kilometers, uh, the attenuation in, in the fiber is enough that you're you're not getting enough to the vehicle when it slows down. So for an intermediate range mission, let's say you wanted to go a kilometer or even two kilometers in Mars uh, on the ice caps of Mars, this would be a great idea. Um, as long as you don't hit any kind of um, heavy sediment or obstacles along, along the way. That is, that is a limitation of this device. You have to have relatively clean ice. It doesn't mean you have to have pure ice. Mm -hmm. You can have salts, you can have hydrates, you, know, you can have acids, whatever you want, sulfur, as long as it's only a certain amount of percent, like less than about 10% of the ice, mm -hmm. uh, it'll go through that. And we've actually done that. We've, we've, we've put these things in the test chamber at Europa temperatures and they go through it. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, that's one. So if you wanted to do short range testing, uh, the optical approach is, is good. Um, the secondary one, the passive uh, thermal probe, uh, it's inefficient. Uh, it won't work with, um, with an optical system. Well, it, it will work with an optical system, but it's a dumb way to do it. The okay. better way is to use a, a radio thermal source or a nuclear reactor. Yeah. Uh, once you once you leave the laser domain, you you're you're into uh, nuclear power. There's no way to escape this. So, uh, so the, the 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 cryobot uses the heat from the uh, nuclear reactor instead of using the nuclear right. reactor to. That, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and there's there are several groups right now uh, 
that are looking at alternative designs for cryobots. One of them uh, is kind of fixated on the use of radiothermal isotopes like plutonium-238. Uh, the problem there is that unless you change what has been a heritage design, it's what's on Mars right now, right? It's, it's what is powering curiosity, what is powering perseverance. Those heat units are inefficient. They're, they're designed for carrying it for power conversion, not for melting ice. So unless uh, there was a, uh, whatever you want to call it, a, uh, a release of uh, standard protocol and repackaging of that material, you can't get enough of it in a small enough place to effectively melt the ice and it will, it will stall out. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there are papers that, that show that this is in fact the, the case. The other problem is that when you look at what the minimum power requirements are, you find yourself at, a, at no less than seven to 10 kilowatts worth of thermal power. And the problem there is that uh, what are you going to do with that? Because a radiothermal isotope is on, you know, from the, from the second that they put that material in the launch vehicle, it is heating that vehicle. And 10 kilowatts is not an inconsequential amount of thermal heat. So you have to think, what are the implications of that throughout the entire uh, transit phase uh, yeah. going, going to Europa? And we came to the conclusion that it's not such a great idea, uh, mm -hmm. that there's a much better way to do it with a micro fission reactor. And so we, uh, we actually designed uh, both types. We, we did a 25 kilowatt uh, radioisotope design, and we did a 100 kilowatt uh, fission design. And the Interesting thing about that is that the size of both of those came out very similar, uh, about 16 centimeters in diameter and 75 centimeters long. This so, is so it not would fit, yeah, it would fit inside a cryobot, no problem. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and in fact, um, we have uh, designed our current vehicles to emulate the, the presence of that reactor. So in other words, yeah. we have a surrogate power source that produces heat in the volume of that reactor. And then we do everything else around that as if the mission had a nuclear reactor. Okay. Um, but if you're gonna talk about going through <clears throat> 24 kilometers of ice, which is what the current uh, thinking is for Europa, go back and read the, the latest papers by Papalardo and Howell. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me a second here. And you'll find out that the, uh, the current thinking is about 24 kilometers plus or minus two or three. Uh, for for Europa uh, and Solidus, there's they don't have really quite the the data they need to do those calculations. But so 24 kilometers, uh, of which about 20 percent is at the critical uh, you know cryogenic temperature, 80 Kelvin, uh, and then you know gradually moving up to what people refer to as warm ice. You know something that would be you know warmer than minus 30 uh, you know uh, centigrade. Um, you know, and then you got to get through all that. Well, it turns out that uh, even with a hundred kilowatt reactor, you're looking at about uh, ten months uh, worth of power. So okay. to get through a to get through a Europa ice cap, you're talking about megawatt days of power. We're not talking okay. about watts or kilowatts. It's megawatt days are the numbers that you're you're talking about to get through there. So the the way to do it is a small nuclear uh, fission uh, reactor, and uh, you can do that today uh, with uh, techniques where you uh, center. Uh, what's referred to as low enriched uranium or uh, even slightly uh, a greater enriched uranium out to about 15%. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not, this is not bomb grade material. This is yes. like a nuclear power reactor material. 
Um, so you can, you know, a private company can build these things and uh, you can't. In, in terms of, of testing, how does it work? Because I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of regulations involved. So is it something that you can test your, your, your designs or? Uh, it, it's, it's, but yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you can build the thing. Uh, it's better to hot fire them though, in a facility that's designed to do that. So they have them out at, uh, uh, Nevada, they have them at Los Alamos and other things. And that's, that's in fact, where they did the uh, testing of the, uh, kilopower sure, uh, yeah. reactor. That was the, the crusty experiment that you, you mentioned, right? So these things are, are, are doable, uh, that those designs were more complicated than the one that we have come up with, which is, uh, uh, a tungsten uh, cermet material in which the uranium is uh, centered in with the tungsten and then you have a single boron a control rod that, that comes down the middle and then around that you have uh, uh, thermal uh, converter uh, chips uh, that, that generate the electrical power. A lot of people have talked about using uh, different uh, heat cycle uh, engines to do this but the problem is moving parts can break especially on a long duration mission. You're talking on the order of six to eight years to run this mission. So you have to have something that's going to be simple and reliable. And so that really boils down to solid state power conversion. And so, so in its current design, this is something that could work on Europa. You mentioned something like 10 months to reach um, the ocean. Is this a reasonable timeline or is or yeah, no, this is to develop something more powerful. Uh, no, 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 no. Okay. 100, 100 kilowatts is plenty to get through Europa. And the good news is it will fit within what we consider to be a, a mission, flight mission compatible cryobot. So okay. you, you mentioned the Thor uh, vehicle. So that is a full closed cycle hot water drill yeah. uh, system, which has a core that emulates a 100 kilowatt uh, fission reactor. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is, is we have an exterior 10 kilowatt or 10,000 volt rather, uh, power system. So it's very high voltage. Um, and that goes down as AC power uh, to a liquid resistor uh, that is the size of the nuclear reactor. And so we can convert 600 kilowatts in a liter uh, volume uh, in, in the vehicle using this. We've proven these, these metrics. And so then from that, we pull in uh, water from the melt in front of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. It goes through a heat exchanger that cycles with this liquid resistor. Uh, and so you can dump enormous amounts of power. This was the big problem with the old uh, uh, Filberth probes, for example, is that they, when they tried to put electrical power into the vehicle, they burned up the resistors. You couldn't get mm -hmm. resistors mm -hmm. that had big enough area to handle the power. Mm -hmm. Well, we, saw, we, we solved that uh, by going to this liquid resistor approach. And uh, so now, you know, we can, we can make this vehicle run anywhere on earth that we want yeah. uh, using this alternative uh, power system. The problem is they're not going to let us put a nuke in Antarctica or Greenland, sure. uh, right? So we have to prove it this way. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually there'll be some larger scale chamber testing with an actual power system in it. But sure. this is proving everything out that needs to happen. But, and, and Tor is, is basically the size of what we could send to Europa, at least in terms of diameter, as I understand it, it would yeah. be a little bit taller, right? Thor, Thor was sized to carry a kilopower reactor uh, yeah. upgraded to 100 kilowatts. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, that's how we ended up with 35 centimeters. The length right now is about two and a half meters, uh, but that does not include the science payload yeah. uh, or uh, any of the uh, uh, vertical motion control systems that have to go in to prevent loss of the vehicle if you hit a void or when you hit the ocean interface. 
So it could be yeah. double that or something like Probably. That. It'll probably be on the order of five meters long, uh, possibly even as much as six. You know, it's one okay. of these things where you're you're fighting the physics because the I was gonna say is is increasing the, the length um, yeah, so if you if you really want to dig into the the nitty gritty, go back and uh, and look up something called the Amot equation, okay. uh, which will will give you the power distribution uh, around an object that's penetrating ice. And so, it turns out that depending on the temperature of the ice and and all that that kind of stuff, um, the diameter of the vehicle and the length of the vehicle come into two different aspects of the the speed calculation, the speed is inversely proportional to the diameter of the vehicle, right? So mm -hmm. if I double the diameter of the vehicle, I slow down by a factor of four, yeah. right? With the same power requirement. So, you know, if you want to get down at any reasonable time, you have to keep the vehicle small in diameter. Well, the problem then is you have all these systems, they got to go somewhere, right? Well, the vehicle just keeps getting taller and taller and taller. Well, there's a, there's a problem, okay? Yeah. And that is that if you look at this AMOD equation, you see this curve, right? Where the power that is needed along the length of the vehicle to keep it from refreezing into the yeah. hole, right? Go, goes up over, over length, right? So you could end up spending 90% of your power just keeping the back end of the vehicle from refreezing, yeah. right? So there's this, there's this optimum number and we've come up with a, uh, an aspect ratio of 15 to one. So 15 diameters. Yeah as the length of the vehicle is the it's kind of an optimum number for outer planet uh designs and so right now you know for a initial mission to the european ocean we're looking at you know a 35 centimeter vehicle maybe as much as 40 centimeters mm -hmm. uh with a 100 kilowatt nuclear core uh and anywhere from five to six meters long i think this is a reasonable bound of what's going to happen in, in in reality when you you know you could you could try to make it smaller Okay, yeah. you could try to play these little tricks. You could use radiothermal sources instead of a fission reactor, but I think it's a mistake if you do that. Mm. Um, the beauty of the fission reactor source and the closed cycle hot water jet is that if you do run into something, you can back up and vector the, the jet to allow you to move. Okay, and we proved that with Valkyrie. We actually had a seven degree off axis uh, deviation with the vehicle by using lateral cutting jets. So it works. And mm -hmm. the other good news there is that you can use those jets to create a pocket if the vehicle has stopped. Usually it's not, you're not gonna hit a, you know, a house sized rock. What you're gonna do is you're gonna hit some gravel, uh, yeah, maybe a, a little deposit here or there from a meteorite impact or something like that. Well, mm -hmm. if you create a pocket to the side and then use the jets to randomly move the debris out of the way, it will keep going down. And we also showed that you could do that with with Valkyrie. Um, so Thor is a much more high power system than Valkyrie ever was. It's the pressures are much higher, the temperatures are much higher, uh, the flow rates are much higher. Uh, it's designed to be an industrial strength machine to go through four kilometers of Antarctic ice cap uh, as a, a demonstration and then a, a carrier vehicle for testing all the other advanced types of systems that you want to do for these outer planet missions. And, and, and how is testing going right now? I, I saw you mentioned uh, going to Iceland and, and going through a glacier. And that's that's phase two. That's yeah. phase two. Right now, yeah. we're finishing up uh, phase one. We have uh, a lot of data that we've got to publish and things like that. 
And then, you know, depending on the, the whims of NASA funding cycles, uh, phase two could start as early as next year. Okay. Uh, or it might, or it might, you know, might be a 12 month or something like that hiatus until they get their cycles aligned. Uh, but the fact is the vehicle works. We did a four day, uh, 50 kilowatt, uh, uh, full power test and, uh, and it runs. So what we need to do next is take it out and, and do the, uh, do the glacier penetration to show that it's working there. And then the next phase beyond that is to start adding back in the science payloads. Uh, to do all the, the life search. And I don't know how much of that you're, you're interested in or paying attention to, but there's a lot of uh, activity going on right now in how you go about uh, detecting life. And, sure. yeah. and by that, I mean, you know, uh, unicellular and, and multicellular small uh, life form, you know, 200 micron size critters. Um, you know, nobody at NASA headquarters and probably ESA as well is thinking that uh, they're going to see a a fish, uh, you know, yeah. swim by on, on Europa. If you did, well, that's end game. You don't have to go through any of these complicated life <laughs> detection and verification. You know, it's like, there it is. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, sure. that, that's a win for the, the team. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, there are other people who wishfully think that, you know, it might happen. Uh, I don't think there's enough energy on Europa to do that. But what I do think, and, and this is in discussions with uh, a lot of uh, astrobiologists, uh, that's one of the, uh, the benefits of doing the kind of work that we do is that you have to put multidisciplinary teams together. And so uh, I have uh, a half dozen or eight uh, microbial molecular biologists and, and microbiologists that we work with regularly. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very, very uh, uh, knowledgeable of what is happening in those fields. Um, and so it's a situation where a lot of people now are beginning to think that um, there's a whole class of uh, bacteria, which might be called uh, uh, nanobacteria, uh, mm -hmm. that are in the uh, sub-micron range, like sub-tenth of a micron range, yeah. uh, that are far more ubiquitous in uh, extremophile environments. These would be very low energy environments. Mm -hmm. uh, environments. These would be, uh, you know, chemoautotrophic uh, organisms. Uh, but the fact that they exist at those extremes suggests that they may be ubiquitous in a low energy ocean, not mm -hmm. necessarily grouped around a hydrothermal vent. Although the, the idea of a hydrothermal vent is a realistic uh, estimate in my mind of what might be found on the floor of the open ocean. Um, so my point of that is that if you uh, work on the detection and the validation of of a nanobacteria discovery in the open water column, mm -hmm. you may not need to go much more than breaking through into the ocean to find that, or you may even see it in the ice column because the ice is accreting underneath and ablating uh, on the surface. I don't know if you're familiar with this phenomenon. Uh, I've seen it personally mm -hmm. in, in Antarctica where a very strange phenomenon happened. For example, uh, you can get what's called uh, basal ice uh, on the floor of the Ross Sea that will ice in a sponge. And then oh, yeah. when the ice, when the ice accretes on the sponge, it becomes positively buoyant. The sponge will rise up yeah. to the bottom of the ice cap. And then as the surface ablates, the bottom accretes and the sponge keeps moving upwards until eventually you have sponges on the surface of the ice cap. And you're going, how the heck did that get there? <laughs> right? Well, there are people who believe that might happen in the European ice cap. And yeah. so while you are going down, 
we have actually done probably more than anybody else uh, the development of in-vehicle triage uh, sensors. Okay, and the classic one that we've uh, we've been using is a, um, a deep ultraviolet uh, mm -hmm. flow spectrometer. Uh, it's, a, it's an instrument called SURFS, uh, and I could I could. <laughs> Give you a long lecture on about you know the other 10 instruments in the detection chain you know that are that are important but the interesting thing about surfs is that it's continuously functioning so you can use it as a triage instrument for the duration of the mission yes. and what happens is if any type type of uh, biological material you know could be a biomarker could be a you know a, a piece of something you know like a, like a uh, a polyaromatic hydrocarbon, an amino acid, not necessarily even life itself, but, you know, things that would suggest that there might be life hanging around. Well, yeah. when you hit those things with a range of frequencies down in the deep ultraviolet, they will glow, they'll fluoresce. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a single photon detector on the other side of that, you can build a spectroscopy chart of magnitude versus wavelength, right? And then you can go through that and go, that is an amino acid, that yeah. is a polyaromatic hydrocarbon, that right there is a protein, right? Yeah. And from that, you would say, wait a minute, you know, there's something funny going on here. Maybe I should send this sample up to more sophisticated yeah. instruments. And right now we've been working with uh, field versions of DNA sequencers. I'm sure you've probably heard of these things. Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're working to actually integrate them into the vehicle itself. Yeah, that, 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 that was going to be my question. Do these instruments currently fit in, inside of the cryobot or is it still? Yeah, the short answer is not quite. But yeah. what is happening right now, uh, there, there is work to develop microfluidic front ends okay. for the sequencers. The sequencers themselves are, are small enough to fit in the cryobot. <clears throat> but there's a problem. The problem is that it uses consumables that are usually, at least right now, uh, administered by human scientists, yep. right? So two things come up there. One is you have to replace the scientist. And the second thing is these consumables are limited. You can't carry an unlimited supply of them. So you might have, let's say 10 shots, you know, 10 tries you get. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do you make the decision as to what sample gets sent up to use one of your precious 10 tries because if you use them all up, right, and then the 11th one is the one that actually had life, well, you just wasted a $4 billion <laughs> mission, right? So, so you, you, get into, you get into all these interesting uh, software decision-making yeah. uh, algorithms. And, uh, you know, the simplest one that people may have heard of is called the secretary algorithm. And you can go on. There's much, much more sophisticated versions. Mm -hmm. And we've implemented all of them. Uh, we, we had the secretary algorithm in, in 2014 uh, running on Valkyrie, and we actually beat uh, the guesses of the on uh, the field microbiologists who were there in interpreting the data. Uh, so, you know, it, it, there's, it's pointing the direction that things will work where we can build an autonomous life detection system that will fit onto one of these vehicles. But you know, going, going back just to, to one thing to, to make sure you understand this, the, the current thinking is that nobody knows what exists even in the ice cap or or even further away the you know a potential ocean and so you would not go doing something like attempting to put a, an autonomous underwater vehicle uh, on the first mission that goes into right. the ice cap it's it's going to be a pure cryobot mission uh, you have to have a way to control 
uh, the vertical position of the cryobite because if it falls into a void, it could actually be a vacuum void because of a, a seismic crack up in the brittle ice. Mm -hmm. nobody, nobody really knows how active the surface of Europa is. Uh, there are conjectures that there are, you know, cryo seismic, you know, events, but nobody knows this. Right? Yeah, until Clipper, we can. It could it could have been ten million years ago that all those cracks formed on Europa. There's really no nobody's been there. Nobody's sit there going, hey, you know, I've got a seismometer. You know, they're happening every hour. They're happening every thousand hours or whatever. But there's people who say, well, it's a risk. It might happen, right? And so if it did happen you know, a couple of problems could happen. Your vehicle might fall into a vacuum void. You know, it could fall into an intermediate level lake uh, that some people have hypothesized from convection, you know, heating over thousands of years. Uh, or for certain, when you hit the ocean interface, if you don't have a way to control its vertical position, you're, you're in trouble. It just drops off, you know, and that's it, end of mission. So what we really want to do is get to the ocean and drop the vehicle all the way to the floor in a controlled fashion for several reasons. Okay. Number one, we don't know what the chemistry is. We don't know what the temperature variation is. We don't know what the current situation is. Do those vary with the tidal cycles of, of an orbit around Jupiter, right? Are they, you know, several tens of, you know, meters per second in terms of flow are they low flow? Nobody knows. And yeah. all of that. So will... that would be the, the cryobot descending uh, tethered by uh, optic fiber or something like that? That's Well, uh, not an optical fiber. You, we want to carry an optical fiber, but no, the it would probably be more like a Dyneema or a Spectra micro tether okay. uh, that the vehicle spools out. But the uh, the idea then is to send it all the way to the floor. Uh, or so around 100 kilometers or something. Uh, that's that's the maximum numbers we've yeah. heard. It, you know, it could be as low as 30 to 40 to 50. Okay. Uh, but, you know, somewhere in that in that range go all the way to the floor and then, you know, take whatever data you can get at, at that point. We've actually had people suggesting that we use the control system uh, to allow currents to pendulum swing the vehicle <laughs> so that you can cover terrain that, you know, the, the more terrain you can see, the better, because the likelihood of you landing straight on top of a hydrothermal vent yeah. is about zero, yeah, <laughs> right? Sure. Right. Which is, which is the argument for having an AV, because then you Absolutely. increase the radius of exploration mm -hmm. uh, from the point. But I've totally come to the conclusion that any successful mission will involve going to the floor, not the underside of the ice cap. And then right. from the floor, you can expand outward with an autonomous vehicle, building maps as you go so that you know how to get back. And then you uplink your, your, your data. So it's a very bold mission, as you're, you're aware. And Absolutely, yeah. So the, the cryobot would need to withstand the pressure at the bottom of the ocean. And that's right. Yeah, and the maximum numbers we've seen is about 1.6 times the depth of the Challenger Deep here on Earth, and those are those are within engineering design sure. uh, parameters. We can we can design for that. Okay, and uh, could it have a camera or something like that? Um, I'm sorry, a what? A, a camera? Oh, of course. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, if you if you go back and look at any of our vehicles, like Artemis, for example, was yeah. a scientific Christmas tree. It had over a hundred instruments. We had five different HD cameras on that vehicle, uh, you know. <laughs> all right, so, so this, yeah, yeah. I mean, all of that will be in there. Uh, currently, uh, Thor carries three cameras, okay. uh, and you know, so yeah, that's your primary science instrument. Everything else, you know, is 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 supporting uh, material that gives you environmental data, that gives you, 
you know, possible chemistry and, and things of that nature. Um, so typically right now, the, the sensors that we have are uh, water chemistry. So these are the classic, you know, mm -hmm. water chemistry, like conductivity, temperature, depth, yep. right? So you'll have a, you have a deep ultraviolet flow spectrometer. Uh, you can have um, basically wet chemistry uh, electrodes uh, that do ion specific uh, characteristics of, of mm -hmm. the water. So that those are your kind of like your three normal ones. Then when you get above that, you're into things like uh, chirality uh, mm -hmm. sensing yep. uh, of, of potential, uh, you know, biological material or origin uh, being okay, biological, yeah. right? You're into things like 3D holographic microscopes uh, that would look at motion, shape, uh, texture, uh, things of that nature. Right now, people are working on libraries of uh, microbial characteristics. And yeah. so by the, by the time this mission comes about that, probably that database will probably be loaded in memory, um, mm -hmm. of sure. the vehicle so that you can do archetype comparisons between what you see in your machine vision camera versus what you have in your library. I mean, as you're probably is that something that can be done, uh, with current tech, um, with AI, because obviously you can do that, uh, remotely. So, uh, is this something that's currently oh, this all, it, it all has to be done on the vehicle. There will be nothing that will be yeah. sent. Yeah, yeah, nothing sent back to Earth. The, this is so far beyond what is happening on Mars right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know that is basically what you would refer to in robotics as a scripted mission, mm -hmm. right? Fifty people at Jet Propulsion Laboratory write out a piece of code every day that yeah. says turn to three hundred and twenty degrees, yeah. move one point two five meters, stop rotate can't right you know you get it right skip scripted choreography that's not the way any of our vehicles work Absolutely. they're all they're all behavior based right so you give them broad global goals and then they have to make the decisions on what to do and, so, and this is not sci-fi that's currently what they're doing right that's what well so the, the the mars rovers are doing scripted missions no i know but but, but your your vehicles are oh so so sun, sunfish is, is completely ai it's yeah. all behavior based we we will typically say, you know, a, a mission description that we upload to the vehicle is we want you to explore, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, we don't want you to get any closer than 10 meters to an obstacle. Number three, we want you to go as far north as you possibly can. And number four, we don't want you to violate the following depth restriction or the following power uh, minimum requirements. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Five lines of code and the vehicle goes off and explores. If you have not seen it yet, um, type in sunfish namibia yeah i've seen I, i've seen the, the the video it's 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 great i mean you should definitely do more of that type of uh um, but we're doing we're doing we're doing plenty of that we have three yeah. years worth of funded work from multiple sponsors right now in that area that's great so yeah. so things are moving rapidly and that's you know that's that's beyond the level of, of the cryobot work you know, sure. it's really yeah. you know if, if nasa is funding the mission that's 30 to 40 years out in the future uh, if we get a private sponsor, we might be able to launch a cryobot mission in under seven years. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm just thinking back about the uh, nuclear reactor. Um, what, what would be the, the per unit cost of, of one of your uh, design? Yeah, we, we actually worked that out. Uh, for, yeah. 100, for a hundred kilowatt uh, fission reactor, yeah. uh, you're looking at about 12 to $15 million. Yeah, and that, and cheap. that, that, it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, an MMRTG is, is like 100 million. Yeah, well, generally. yeah, well, so there's a reason for that, okay. And, and you have to understand the, the nature million, of the, I'm guessing. well, yes, you hit it, but you have to understand why, okay. 
plutonium 238 is the desired radiothermal source for a lot of reasons. It's a nice pure alpha emitter. It's got very good thermal characteristics. You know, you get watts per gram, right? It's easy to shield. Uh, and then you, you simply put a static, uh, you know, tech converter uh, system around that to get your electrical power. And it's very, mm. very reliable. The problem is that to produce plutonium-238 right now, the standard method for doing that is by irradiation of certain radioisotopes in a nuclear reactor, allowing those to decay and then doing chemical separation. Well, the prices that the Department of yeah, the prices that Department of Energy you know gives NASA are astronomical, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of million dollars just to get a kilogram of material. And for, for the, uh, uh, the Martian rovers right now, it's, I think it's two kilograms mm -hmm. per rover, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is the problem. There are some people that I'm aware of uh, that are looking at alternative uh, commercial means to produce plutonium-238, mm -hmm. largely, largely to enable uh, commercial uh, deep space missions. That's what I, I was going to, to ask. Um, have you thought about um, commercializing your, your nuclear reactor as a uh, propulsion or power source for? Um, uh, yeah, so the, yeah, so here's, here's the thing. Uh, when you talk about nuclear thermal propulsion, mm -hmm. you're not talking 100 kilowatts, you're talking megawatts. Okay. So these are, these are much bigger reactors. Uh, okay. And there, yeah. there are uh, funded programs right now that are looking at uh, developing those. We're not competing in that in that arena. Okay. Um, no. The the area of small scale uh, RTGs uh, based on alternative materials to plutonium two thirty eight. We are working in that area, and we are working in the small fifty to hundred kilowatt reactor range for the propulsion of or for the the melting of cryobots. Yeah, yeah. Right? right, but the. Uh, the small scale uh, RTG work that we're doing uh, looks like it will be sufficient for most of the other things that we want to do. Okay. So, um, you know, there's there's interesting possibilities on the, on the horizon where we don't have to wait for cheap plutonium 238 if we want to launch a mission. So if a billionaire came to me tomorrow and said, hey, let's go to Europa, yeah. uh, I, I would give him about a seven year time to launch uh, to get everything in. And that would give us about three years beyond the expected uh, certification and licensing uh, times to get these things approved for launch. Right? It does take time, but sure, yeah. the, good the good news is there's no black magic involved. There's no legal you know, hurdles to get over. You just simply have to go through the paperwork okay. uh, and, and build it and show that you've you know, done what they expect you to do. So we know how to do that. We know how much it costs. Uh, and it's just a question of, you know, are, does somebody want to put the money on the table and go ahead and do the mission? And so the, the, the RTG work you mentioned, what, what would that be used for? Uh, you can use it for powering all the instruments uh, on board. Okay, uh, so, so the, the, the nuclear reactor only powers the, the melting part. So yeah, the, the, the thermal source, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. And, and what's, yeah. what's the cost of, of, of an RTG with your, with your design? That would, surprisingly, it would end up being very close, about 10 million. Uh, and, and the reason is you have to refine the material uh, and then put it into containers that are uh, radiation safe. For so, yeah, this one is not using plutonium. It's the strontium-90, right? That's, that's correct. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's much cheaper, I'm guessing. Much, much cheaper, but it does have the problem that one of its decay products has a decay cycle that occasionally involves a gamma okay. um, yeah. response. So you have to shield against that if you're going to be having this being used by humans, or I'm going to 
handle this and put it in my cryobite, well, then you have to have an additional shielding requirement to do that. So, you know, we're working all that. It's, it's, it's doable. There's nothing in there that's uh, uh, a showstopper, you know. It's, it's and and so one RTG would power all the instruments of the, of the cryobot? That's right. Yeah, for, for about 15 years. That's great. And uh, could you test um, that before pro uh, the tour program on Lake Vostok or, or another Antarctic? Uh, uh, ab abso absolutely. Uh, yeah. We want to do something a little bit simpler first. Uh, that was why Iceland was targeted. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's only about 300 meters worth of ice cap there. And, uh, and it does open out into, uh, there's a couple places where there are subglacial lakes. Lake, yeah. Yeah, and so that's the initial uh, uh, target for uh, phase two of, of Thor. And once mm -hmm. we do that uh, and show that all of the elements are uh, reliable under sustained uh, power, uh, then the very next thing would be to go to some of the Antarctic subglacial lakes, which as you're aware, you know, reach depths of 4,000 meters. Yeah. So Vostok is one of those, but I can tell you, uh, having talked to the scientific community, there's about 300 other sites that people are very interested in. Uh, some of them are far more interesting than Vostok. Okay, I'm, I'm guessing that's a logistical nightmare to, to put something like this on, on the surface of Antarctica and-, and... Actually not, no? actually not. No, if you go and uh, look at some of the uh, recent work in the last uh, seven years that, mm -hmm. uh, for example, the National Science Foundation has uh, funded the Wizard uh, Project, the Salsa Project, uh, and a couple of projects done by uh, uh, New Zealanders with smaller drills. But these were um, hot water drills that produced holes that were very similar to what Thor uh, would produce. Mm -hmm. And the problem they had is that to put those in the field was 500 metric tons uh, of equipment, right? That's a lot of gear, a lot of gear. It's a tour de force. Those were $50 million projects to put one hole in the ground right. through seven, 700 meters of ice. Um, Thor is a much more uh, mobile system than any of those places. And part of the reason uh, that, it, that it really excels is that when you go back and look at, for example, the wizard project, all of that work, all of those years of planning and the, the fielding of that team produced one hole that froze back shut within 36 hours. If they wanted to stay longer, they had to ream the hole and then they'd get another 24 hours. Mm -hmm. But they weren't on site more than a couple of days with the hole actually in use. The thing about Thor is that it's bi-directional. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't care that the hole is going to freeze behind it. Right. It just keeps on going down, does its mission. And when you're ready to Those come are, home, yeah. you reverse the cutting jets on the hot water drill and you, you pull yourself back to the surface. But, but to test it, you would need to have a sort of uh, permanent base on, on Antarctica to... Uh, yeah, well, we have one. It's called uh, South Pole Station. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know. But yeah. um, I, the, the subglacial lakes that uh, you would want to... Uh, uh, to reach up, I'm guessing yeah, well, so, so directly above it. So uh, yeah, a couple a couple things you might not be aware of. Uh, yeah. Most of these places are accessible uh, both by C-130 uh, aircraft, cargo aircraft, yeah. as well as by something called the South Pole Overland Traverse. This is where they use uh, tractors uh, to okay. tow sleds. Uh, it's how South Pole Station is mainly supplied is by the supply train that comes mm -hmm. using tractors uh, to haul three or four uh, 14 meter long sleds 
uh, of heavy equipment to South Pole, including fuel and things like that. So those approaches are available, but it makes sense to do some of the initial work uh, near some of the established stations. So Vostok, Casey Station, uh, you know, U.S. South Pole Station, uh, all of those would be good uh, places to base some initial work from. And there's, uh, there's actually uh, a lot of data around South Pole Station from the Ice Cube uh, project, mm -hmm. where they, they drilled up to 100 holes to put these uh, uh, neutrino scintillators yeah. in, in the ice, right? So we know what the ice characteristics are, the temperatures. We can tell you pretty much how long it's going to take Thor to get through uh, based on the power and the, uh, the ice temperature profile. So the nice thing is we don't have any heavy equipment that goes with this. Once you... You, you, you have a portable carbon-carbon tripod that lifts the vehicle up. Once it gets into the, into the ground, it goes by itself. It doesn't need any other, you know, big hoses. Look, look at, the, uh, at the ice cube project. They have a, uh, a hot water drill hose that has to be the size of a house, um, you know, on a gigantic drum uh, that might be 10 meters in diameter and 25 meters long. <laughs> that carries all the hose that has to run the hot water down that, that drill. You know, we get away with all that. We don't have any of that. We don't have any of the burners that they have and things like that. It uses a diesel generator to mm -hmm. provide the power, but that's it. So you can just leave it and, and do its thing. And, and... Yeah. Yeah. We, we just have to have a, uh, a depot of diesel fuel to run the, run the generator. Okay. Uh, but otherwise the surface infrastructure is, pretty much you know whatever you want in terms of a, a small human crew to just make sure it's functioning and repair any thing that goes wrong if the generator shuts down or something like that so uh, the footprint of this is probably on the order of uh, a 50th of what the the wizard drill was right to, so, to do more sure yeah so, so when you reach uh, a lake on earth or uh, an ocean on, on europa um Obviously, you need a probe that a cryobot that is going to be extremely clean. So, uh, could it be sterilized to an acceptable level of uh, planetary protection? That's um, the whole. That's the whole idea. The beauty yeah. of a cryobot is that it is a self-contained device. So, so, so you can heat it. Uh, you, you can you can heat it. You can clean it with hydrogen peroxide. You can put it into a sterile wrapper sure. uh, that you then take down. Even if you want to do this in Antarctica, right? You can do it this way, sure. so that. When you, when you put it into the ice, it is as clean as it will be on a planetary mission. And there have been very interesting experiments conducted uh, by Joe Makuki and some people up at University of Washington, where they tracked the propagation of microbes from the surface behind a uh, passive thermal probe. And what they discovered was that after a few vehicle lengths, any surface-based microbes were gone. So basically, you're not transporting Mm -hmm. uh, anything down with you. And as long as the vehicle is sterile, when it goes in, you're not going to be affecting the, the life through the ice as you go. Well, that's good to know, because that's a major issue, of course, in a, yeah. on a mission like this. Yeah. So. Right. But, 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 you know, if you're talking about a, a life search mission on Europa, what you have to do, the gold standard is to detect something that is not matching any DNA sequence on earth. Absolutely. Right. That's the gold standard. So if you have, you know, a thousand base pairs that are not like anything ever seen on earth, you know, that's going to be it regardless good, of what yeah. the, regardless of what it looks like. But if you say, Hey, this thousand base pair sequence is E. Coli. Yeah. Well, 
you know, than somebody in jet propulsion laboratories or somewhere else. They didn't wash their hands. Uh, yeah. yeah, didn't wash their hands and touched <laughs> it after it had been sterilized. Right. <clears throat> right. And so that's the uh, and, and I don't know how familiar you are with planetary protection standards, but they are not 100 percent. Yeah, okay? you will never get the cleanliness down to a level of less than perhaps 100 microbes per square meter. Okay. You know, you're just, it's not going to be zero sure. ever. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, so you mentioned um, finding a billionaire that can uh, fund a, a mission to Europa. I, I think you mentioned in previous interviews uh, a price tag of something like uh, 1.5 or $2 billion. Um, less, 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 I think, is, is yeah. The, the, can the can more... you break that down, the, the, the cost of the, the launch, the lender? And yeah, the... yeah, yeah. So the, the reason I'm, I'm saying less is largely because of SpaceX. Okay. Yeah. So you, you have a couple of things that have to happen. Number one is to get something out there, you need a fairly uh, big launch, yeah. uh, launch vehicle. Okay, so everybody, <clears throat> everybody has assumed, uh, you know, up until recently that that was going to be the SLS launch system. Okay, sure. and you know, if you pay attention to the news, even if you're kind of not very educated, you're gonna get the idea that, you know, this is a, a political, game yeah. with, with that vehicle it's a, it's a jobs program okay yeah, it is it's not it going is to not, fly very often yeah. no in fact they've, they've just again now said that you know returning to the moon will be many years off now yeah. you know used to be they were going to be there by 2024 well then it used to be it was 2020 then it was 2015 then it was 2000 you know it's a rolling yeah. it's a rolling target that's about 20 years in the future always <laughs> right <clears throat> right so uh so but there's a way around this okay there's a way around this and if you you see what is happening right now with the resupply of the International Space Station. Yep. These, are, these are automated cargo vessels, right? That go up and will dock. And I can tell you a lot about that because we use these same concepts with Sunfish. Sunfish and Artemis <clears throat> were all auto docking vehicles. Artemis, in fact, came in using three-stage navigation from as much as 10 kilometers out under the Ross ice shelf and found a hole that was only 1.2 meters in diameter. I've seen the locked, videos. It's pretty locked pretty onto a target, right? And and comes back to the surface, right? Yeah. So the the and you can do this much better when you don't have water in the way, right? If you can use radar or lidar, right, and machine vision, this is this is a slam dunk. Okay, it's just mm -hmm. it's and unless you have a, a an errant thruster in that final stage <laughs> docking, right? You're going to be way better than a pilot, right? So what do you do for a Europa mission? you use a couple of Falcon heavies to put the pieces up, including the fuel, and they or, auto dock and auto assemble in orbit. Or perhaps uh, in the not too distant future, a Starship. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sold on Starship. Okay. I, All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, they've, they've done some fantastic stuff, especially with their first stage boosters, you know, being recovered. Yeah. yeah. Hats off. Beautiful. Um, but <clears throat> the fact is the Falcon heavy, can lift yeah. roughly 75 tons sure. okay to orbit right well here's the problem with europa okay mars is a piece of cake you sure. can put tons on mars right why is it easy because you can use aero braking yeah right you can't do that on europa right there is no there is no atmosphere so <clears throat> when you come in there and one of the reasons why they're doing this flyby mission with clipper is because it is so expensive to even do things like go into orbit. You have yeah. to carry all that fuel with you to do your delta V braking maneuver just to get into orbit. Well, it's even more delta V 
to get something on the surface. And so it turned out that with the SLS, whatever it was, block three, mm-hmm. they, yeah. they calculated that you could only put one ton on the surface of Europa maximum. And that included anything like power systems, the lander, right? Everything, right? And, and your cryobot had to be down there in the sub 200 kilogram range. Well, that's not a lot to work with, sure. especially when it has to have its own nuclear reactor right. you know, on, on board. So this is, this is where you're getting into a logistics scheme. Well, you can break that by building a bigger vehicle in orbit in pieces. Sure. So maybe, maybe you do two or three Falcon heavies, you okay. assemble it in orbit, and now you have the ability to land significant mass on Europa. And of course, the more mass you have, what that equates to is reliability and performance capability. So I can now put redundant you know, systems in. I can put bigger power supplies in. You know, I can put redundant communications so, elements in. Uh, Falcon Heavy, two, two or three launches, that would be something like 200 or $300 million. Uh, yeah, also, right. It depends on who you talk to, but 90 million a launch. Yeah, so you're talking like about three, 300 million. So my guess is that, that, that that's part of it. Okay. Yeah. The, the development of the hardware, honestly, way less than 500 million. Okay. So, so well under a billion dollars to do this mission privately. And maybe, wow. maybe, maybe even two thirds or half of that. Wow. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, roughly, roughly a tenth or a twentieth of what the government could do it for. Yeah, that doesn't really surprise me, but <laughs> it's 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 still an incredible figure. So, so if if I came to you and, and and told you I want to buy a cryobot with its own power supply and everything, and I want to put it on my lender or whatever, uh, how much would that cost? Uh, you know, with space qualification, you know, this this yeah. is where you have to play this game, right? It's like. Uh, there are certain places where you can uh, improve your reliability, not through gold plating, single string thing. Yeah. You know, if you go back and look at uh, the Apollo mission, and mm-hmm. the lander, there were single string failure scenarios throughout that mission. So what did they do? They tested it forever, right? And they had this one thing and they crossed their fingers and said, okay, it's going to mm-hmm. work, right? The way to get around that is you use redundancy of components, right? Well, I mean, I learned this personally long ago. I, I, I design closed cycle life support equipment. Yeah. If, you're, if you're a diver, you may know about rebreathers and things like that. Uh, you know, we started, well, we, we did. We designed the first commercial rebreathers back in the early 1980s. And because we were using them for cave diving and we didn't want to die, the question was, how do you put these together in a way that will be survivable? And we didn't want to go and build a, a gold-plated thing. We said, well, we need to be practical here. So we built redundant systems. We had parallel rebreathers. We had parallel gas supplies where you could cross-link those between rebreathers. Well, that same type of concept can be extended to space propulsion, right? And the classic example of this today is a Falcon 9. Go look at the back end of a Falcon 9, right? The reason it says 9 is because it has nine thrusters. Right. And that idea of cheap commonality reuse of elements makes things more economical and way more reliable. Right. So that's where you start thinking, all right, what do you what do you need to make more reliable? And so it's it's one of these things where it's a a game between you want to be sure you don't fail because you might not get another chance. Right. 
you know, if I were playing an expedition game, well, it's, it's not a one shot. It's always, we're going back no matter what, you know, if you look at the kind of work we've done at Cueva Cheve in Southern Mexico, my God, you know, I'm up to like 20 expeditions there now. Right. And, and, and about five years of my life, you know, on site. So you use the information from the previous expedition to plan the next one. Right. So the likelihood of a billionaire coming in saying, all right, we are going to find life no matter what I will fund three or five missions. You know, that's a lot of money and that would be a hell of a commitment, but it would be bold as heck. Right. And the likelihood of success would be dependent only at that point on whether in fact there were microbes or something in, you know, the sub ice cap ocean of Europa or Enceladus or Titan, you know, Titan is another one of these things where people don't really realize that the, the geophysical data indicate that there is a subsurface ocean there as well. Right. They're, they're, everybody's enamored by the surficial, you know, uh, cryogenic, you know, hydrocarbon lakes, right. um, you know, very, very intriguing, but you know, a hundred kilometers below that is this big ocean. Right. And who knows what the hell is, is in there. It doesn't have quite the, uh, the same tidal dynamics as uh, as Europa has, and and that's why I, I would give uh, Europa the better shot. I think absolutely, yeah. Because if you look at what drives microbes, there's there's two things. Number one, uh, they have to have some type of uh, chemical driver, okay, an electron donor and an electron receptor, absolutely. right? And typically that will happen at a place where there is geothermal energy uh and that can be driven by tidal flexing of the you know internal crust of europa by the orbit about europa so it, it is fairly unique and if i had to say you know of all the ocean worlds you know you've seen the little map that uh, kevin hand put out uh you know that's the one that's the one that you want to go to if you really want to do it um so you know if a billionaire came to me and says by god let's go do it i would say all right plan for more than one mission and the first one is going to be a test case. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to try to build it as reliably as we can. We're going to land. We're going to get through the ice cap. We're going to get as far into the ocean as we can. And then we take the data and try to figure out what the next move is. If we're super lucky, we find nanobacteria this, you know, not long after we break through into the ocean. It's just swirling around there in the current, mm. right? If we're not so lucky, well, then, then you have to get to the next phase, which is, okay, can we get a small enough nuclear powered AUV to go out and extend the radius to start trying to find those hydrothermal so, vents. So that currently uh, isn't possible, the, the small AUV with, with an- uh, no, it, 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 it is possible. It just means you have to design it, right? And right okay. now, just, just to give you an idea, Sunfish would have to be uh, reduced in size, probably on the order of, I would say, 40% to be able to fit it into Thor, right? Okay. We would have to, we would have to change the exterior geometry to make it fit into a tube. Mm -hmm. And then, then you have these issues. All right. How are you going to deploy it? Sure. Uh, is it going to come back and uh, how does it communicate all of these little things? So it, it turns out if you don't have to retrieve it, then things are a lot easier. Deploying is a lot easier than retrieving, yeah, uh, yeah. you know? And, uh, and so for testing these, you know, Antarctica is, is the classic test case. In fact, we, I don't know if you're familiar with the term decadal survey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so NASA has, is just finishing uh, the next big one. And we put in a, uh, a white paper, several actually, mm -hmm. a white paper, but I was the lead on this one to 
establish a uh, a permanent uh, test base in Antarctica for uh, proving out these these concepts of cryobots and sub-ice AUVs for the purpose of de detection of life. And there are enough interesting targets in Antarctica where you know if you could prove it there, you've got a darn good chance of of proving it on on Europa. We'll, we'll, we'll see what the the Bicarol survey says when it comes out in, I don't know, March, something like this, next yeah, year? Some, sometime in that, that time frame, you know, and it's, and the problem with it, of course, if you're familiar with NASA is it's a tribal warfare situation. Uh, you know, the Mars tribe is very powerful. Yeah, I read uh, the book on the uh, Europa Clipper mission. It's 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 a bit infuriating sometimes to see. Uh... Have you have you have you read Kevin Hand's book? Yep. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you're. Very I, well... I was surprised that he, that he because he's a very uh, measured scientist. So you know, when he's in public, he doesn't say um, you know there could be multicellular life on Europa, and yet in his book, he's saying that well, it, technically it could it could happen. Uh, so it's yeah. uh, it's interesting, um, but it's it's a great book. Um, I would love to have. Any... Well, he's he is uh, he's the guy to follow uh, sure. at, at at JPL for certain. Yeah. Uh, none of the other people have the 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 guts to try to push for what he's trying to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, it can be politically dangerous <laughs> to to do that. You know, sure. uh, because you know it is it is this tribal situation, sadly. Uh, and once they make a decision to go with one, well, because it costs so much in the government, you know, he might never be able to get his funded because somebody decided to do a Titan mission instead. Um, sure. You know, it's, 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 just, it's just that way. However, you know, uh, both he, he's a very good friend, by the way. Um, and uh, yeah. both of us have come to the conclusion that the alternative path by getting a billionaire to fund a mission uh, is not only feasible, it is perhaps the most likely way that it'll happen within the next 50 years. Sure. Yeah. So, so if, yeah. So you, you need someone who says, you know, uh, I have bought launch vehicles. Here's $300 million, $500 million, and uh, let's roll. Yeah. No, I, I you know, I, if you said to me, come up with a real budget, I have the money. Yeah. I could I could hone it down to even better, right? It would really be dominated by the launch cost, the actual development. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to 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 yeah. have some hard numbers on because I'm really yeah. curious how cheap. Yeah, I would I it. would say I would say certainly within the five to seven hundred million dollar range if somebody put the money on the table today, okay. and a large part of that would go into uh, the design, the validation of the safety issues of the reactor. Mm -hmm. uh, and into the uh, radiation uh, hardening uh, of all of the electronics uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, galactic cosmic radiation was not going to cause our, you know, life detection circuitry to go out and things of that nature, uh, you know, during thermal vacuum testing. These are all logical things that you do have to do if you want them to be, be, be you know, reliable. Um, and the other thing is that within that, you would have to build a, a large scale version of what we have right now, which is a cryogenic uh, test tank Chamber, yeah yeah a big one that that has uh, probably on the order of 20 to 30 meters of ice column mm. uh, the reason is you have to be able to test the full-size vehicle and we've done thermal simulations and it turns out that the length of such a facility has to be on the order of at least three vehicle lengths okay. and the diameter has to be on the order of 10 
minimum diameters of radius. So if the vehicle is a meter in diameter, you need 10 meters of radius uh, to prevent uh, boundary condition uh, mm -hmm. affecting the, the results, right. right? But once you have that, you know, you could then go in there and put an actual nuclear reactor and fire it up and make sure that things are working. Yeah, that's incredibly cheap. I mean, um, I, I, you know, I, yeah. if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, yeah. nah, you know, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be 2050. Oh. But now, no, I mean, after all the stuff that we've done so far, uh, we're on track. I can see it. Uh, I would say that right now, there is nobody on this planet that is closer than we are with building real hardware. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> to, to do that mission. And I, I see it laid out. I see the path. It's amazing. Yeah. And so uh, I think we, we've done an hour. So, I mean, perhaps I, I should uh, wrap this up. Um, uh, so again, thank you so much for, for doing this. That was oh, no, my, my pleasure. Yeah, if you have, if you have any other questions, you can email me or whatever, and I can let you know what's happening from time to time. But uh, that would be right great. Now, yeah. Right now, things are things are interesting. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm blown away by the the, the price tag on, on such a on such a, a mission. So, um, well, uh, Dr. Stone, thank you so much again for 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 joining me, and uh, well, I hope we uh, we get to catch up uh, a little bit later. Very good. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.